นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสามิท่านวาระบดี over here who has just arrived also been living at Chithurst and he's come to live here for a year which is a bit better than a week um, and we're very pleased about that so uh, yeah it's been very nice uh, last time I spent time with Tanatiko I uh, recall um, he was uh, a newly come novice uh, sort of young novice monk and what what banana chart and um, I think it was 10 years ago was it Lumpur Chah's funeral yes we were all gathered together at what nana chart and what bapong for Lumpur Chah's funeral and uh, I was assigned um, Samanera Matiko as an attendant on that occasion and I confess that uh, I can remember almost nothing <laughs> About um, Tamnatiko, uh, other than um, the fact that he used to get up at something like three thirty in the morning and boil a kettle of hot water and fill a thermos flask and bring it over to me so I could have a cup of tea, and I'm eternally grateful for that. Uh, it was a very sweet thing, and I don't know where he got the kettle from. They were very hard to come by. There are a bunch of ascetics over there. They're not like us, and and even black old kettles are hard to find. Not to mention firewood, and and he was sleeping in a sleeping bag outside. Didn't even have a mosquito net, I don't think. I had a nice little cootie with, you know, real walls and a real roof, and he was outside there in the open and unprotected, and getting up at this unearthly hour to. Light a fire and boil the water and fill a thermos and come round and humbly bow to me, and offer this hot water so I could have a cup of tea. And uh, it wasn't just that I needed a cup of tea, but I remember on that occasion we were gathering together as a community of Western disciples of Ajahn Chah um, after the funeral for a week and. Um, I had um, completely, to my surprise, at the last minute, I'd been asked if I would, I would uh, facilitate this whole sangha gathering, a three-day meeting of, of um, basically working out where we were at with each other, and all the senior monks from all around the branch monasteries in the Western world were there, as well as the entire Western sangha of that was in Thailand at that time. It was an onerous and challenging task, and uh, one I didn't feel at all up to. And at the end of each day, I would go back to my kuti and collapse, utterly exhausted. 
and dreading the next day. But the first thing the next day was Samanera Natika would turn up with this beautiful gesture of a hard come by thermos of hot tea and I could have this really delicious cup of tea. And so I'm eternally grateful for that. And um, and shall always remember it. And I was I was thinking, I was reflecting on this, I said, Well I can't remember anything else about Natiko other than this gesture of kindness and I thought well, that's a marvellous thing really like I don't remember what job he did when he was a layman or how old he was or I remember he was Swedish I remember that much but no details of his life and what it prompted for me was the recognition or the remembering that that what really matters and what really lasts and not necessarily the the superficial or the obvious things, so that like the the personality level of things is not really that important. And the details of Natiko's life were not important enough for me to remember, but that gesture of kindness was was important. And I think it's good to or wise to recognise how the ways of the heart are very mysterious. The ways our heart works, what determines our life, you know, what determines my relationship with, with Natiko, that's an important factor, that, that gesture. And it's not always obviously the case. You know, we sometimes mistake what's going on in our head for being what really matters. Myself, still, having been a monk for 27 years, I, I can still get caught up in the superficial concerns and the way things appear to be can become dominant. Whereas the way things really are is something that we can only know with our hearts, and something we know in a quiet way. This is the word we talk about: practicing dhamma, realizing dhamma, understanding dhamma. And dhamma is is a difficult word to translate, but basically means reality. And reality is not something to do with just what we think in our heads. That's a, such a that's such a such a minimal aspect of reality. What matters is something that we know from a deeper place. Reality is a matter of the heart. And so learning to see what matters, learning to see, that's why I used the word in the beginning (coughs) that this effort of meditation is a path of recognition of recognizing, of seeing in a new way, seeing heartfully rather than understanding superficially. So I think it's wise to ponder on (coughs) the possibility 
of training to see in a new way and how different this is from a worldly way of seeing. And how it can be cultivated, how it can change, to really, to really be quite conscious that this is something that can be developed. On an everyday level, there's the experience that we've all grown through of our perception changing from those of being children to the perception of an adult. When we were children, <coughs> we all had all sorts of ideas about our parents. I can still remember ideas I had about my parents, and my parents were to blame for everything, basically. You know, I, I can still remember an incident where my father wouldn't let me have the car. He ruined my love life. Ruined it. Well, for a while, and, and repaired the damage, but Temporarily, it seemed like ruined. I wanted to go to Tiamutu to visit somebody, and he wouldn't let me have the car. And I thought he was just completely insensitive. I remember having a perception of my father as being completely, totally, you know, hopeless. That he wouldn't let me have the car. Well, my perception on that occasion, I think I was 17, 16, 17. The perception I had of my father was that, and I felt utterly justified in this perception, that he was completely beyond the pale. No, not a hint of compassion or kindness or sensitivity or wisdom or understanding or recognition of what was valuable in my life <laughs> or anybody else's life. So, of course, we've all been through such things. I mean, when we're children, we really blame our parents for everything. And, and then we grow up and you realize, well, you know, basically we're all in this together and you know, everybody struggles and and hopefully we learn to not blame our parents and sometimes it takes a while, I admit, but uh, our perception changes, our way of seeing changes and and I know when I go home now and I I spend time with my mother, I mean there's still things come up that that um, ideally um, wouldn't happen between us, but I don't see them in the same way, I don't explode at my mother and I don't blame her things. But that way of seeing changed and so the Buddha was encouraging us to recognize that we have this potential to cultivate our seeing so that ultimately we learn to see clearly according with reality to develop what ultimately is called, well in Pali, samaditi, or perfect seeing. Sometimes it's called <coughs> right view. <coughs> that, ha <coughs> that has the disadvantage of sounding like, uh, you know, the correct opinion. Uh, samaditi. Samma is the same word as in samma sambuddha, perfectly self-enlightened one. Somehow the word means actually a sense of perfection or completion, purity. Samaditi, ditti, seeing or view, way of seeing, perfect seeing. Seeing clearly is a possibility. And to consider that possibility, I find actually very hopeful. When we, we look around at 
yeah. our own lives and the mistakes we've made and if we look carefully well we can see that basically I, I didn't see clearly that was really if I'm honest that was the problem talking again about family situations I can remember it's, uh, I went home to visit my family uh, off and on over the years and and most times when I would go home it was a it was a really painful experience and many of you will know the, the difficulties that uh, I've been through because my family are fundamentalist evangelicals and um, and they never seem to desist from trying to convert me um, to save me and that's always been slightly offensive because I you know I feel fairly confident about what I'm doing and and um, you know, I, I make a bit of effort and quite a bit of effort over the years in pursuit of, of um, what I trust to be true and real and valuable but this has never been recognized and and some I would go home and I would just feel desperately sad he you know my family my parents my brothers and sisters the they're either ordained preachers or lay preachers and, and virtuous, honest, good, generous people. And here I am, a you know, reasonably decent sort of chap, you know, kind of making my making my best effort to get up early in the morning and, you know, keep my precepts and be kind and generous and so on. And yet we don't see each other. We don't meet in a glad and happy way. And and that always struck me as being incredibly sad and, and my visits home would I'd nearly always get sick with some condition and, and always be pleased to leave and and usually when I left pretty much determined I would never go back again and this is even after many years as a month but I kept working with it and then I remember one year I went home and I'd been just looking at how I was feeling and feeling how I was feeling and working to not have a judgment of it saying I shouldn't be feeling this way in other words trying to practice mindfulness and then suddenly without my expecting it suddenly I saw that actually sadness is just so this is sad that you know, reasonably decent people can't be happy together that's actually sad and you can't make it not sad. It is sad. But because it's sad doesn't mean to say it's wrong. And that wasn't something that I figured out with my head. It wasn't something that I convinced myself about, but it was a shift in the way that I saw inwardly the experience of sadness. And it was a great inspiration. It didn't necessarily make the relation wonderful, the relationship wonderful, but it certainly made it much more workable and agreeable. So the Buddha's encouragement to make the kind of effort which addresses our false seeing, understanding that we can cultivate, we can learn to see inwardly in accordance with reality see beyond the way things appear to be. Actually on that occasion of Ajahn Chah's funeral I also um, had the good fortune, the privilege of compiling a book of talks 
by some of the disciples of Ajahn Chan. And I chose to call the book Seeing the Way because so much that's written about Buddhism seems to en- encourage uh, the sense that progress on the path is associated with mental activity whilst we all know that as hard as we might try to figure things out in our head regularly our efforts fall short of transformation we don't feel differently about reality by thinking hard about it However, there is a kind of effort we make whereby there can be a transformation of our relationship with reality. We can come to see quite differently. So experiences like that, um, that experience with my family, or just today actually somebody was um, relating to me how their course that they're doing at university, they're doing a course in counselling at university and for purely political reasons the dean of the department has has suggested they close down this this course in counselling. There's a lot of people on it. It's a lucrative course for the university. However, it's not economic grounds. It's purely political. The dean has announced that he's considering closing it down, and it's very unfortunate for those who are engaged in the uh, training there. So they were all the students were encouraged to write nasty letters to the dean or whoever was responsible and. So this person was telling me how they were in the midst of writing a, an angry letter, telling the dean what, what he thought of this proposal, all enraged and inflamed, and feeling very righteous about it. When partway through writing this letter, it suddenly occurred to him that what he was doing, he saw what he was doing, and that he was propelling out this passionate hot energy of resentment towards an imagined other person. Actually he was in his room there on the laptop, you know, typing away <coughs> a letter. And the other person was probably having dinner, goodness knows where, and but he was he was enraged. And in that moment he reported how something shifted and he saw the dynamic in a different way. He saw what was happening with his anger and how he was suffering and how probably also somebody else would suffer when they read the letter and how actually counterproductive that was. And with that seeing, there was a actual bodily experience of a new way of relating to the feeling and the perception of the situation. So as I was saying, we can look at our own life or, and see the mistakes that we've made or, or we make, or we can look at what's going on around us and see what's going on around us. And I think it's wise to consider that it's not just another conceptual framework that we need, but it's a new way of seeing that's called for. People are reporting, <coughs> a, um, I don't know whether it happens every year, I, I'm not familiar with the the um, dynamics of the economy, but they're talking about overspend at the moment. People are spending way beyond their means, and 
It may be an annual phenomenon at Christmas, it may be a way of coping with global anxiety, whatever it is. You know, why is it that people or we spend more energy than we've got or than suitable? Well, surely it's because of our false seeing and then we become indebted, we fall into debt because of our false seeing. So recognizing the responsibility for adjusting our lives is, is not just uh, to find a new political system or a new way of thinking or a new idea, but to trust in this uh, encouragement that we're given to address our seeing. How well are we seeing? How clear are we seeing? And from the Buddhist perspective, if there's some aditi or if there's perfect seeing, there's actually no suffering. When there's perfect seeing, well then there's the rest of the factors of the Eightfold Path. Right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, all flow from this perfect perspective or this right seeing, clear seeing. So if this perspective makes sense to us, well then we can feel encouraged on on the path of practice. And the effort that is really called for. It's not an effort that, that the world is really interested in. The, I don't mean people outside monasteries, I mean the world in, in Buddhist speak is, is people who still believe absolutely in the way things appear to be. That's a superficial or a worldly view of things. It's not a, a judgment or talking about a lifestyle, it's, to, it's a talking about a, a disposition in life. The Buddha said the way things appear to be is very fooling. And like, you know, children think parents are to blame, you know, or they think when they suffer, they think it's going to last forever. And when we're little children, we get hurt and we cry because we think the pain's going to last forever. Or, you know, mummy goes out shopping and you cry because you think mummy's not coming back. Well, as we grow up, we realize that actually it, mummy's gone away, but mummy will come back and the pain will pass. And so we develop a different perspective on things. Well, this process of development needs to continue so that on the very level where we're creating sufferings for ourselves by misperceiving or misseeing reality, we can engage in the kind of effort that addresses the problem directly. So what are the kind of efforts that we make? What are the conditions that support this learning to see in a new way, in a way that accords with reality. Somebody recently sent me a very uh, beautiful colour print, um, laminated, you know, so nice colour print of a painting, a very old painting of Ulyss- uh, Ulysses. And uh, I forget who the painter was, but um, it's a very beautiful picture of the outrageous effort that Ulysses made by having himself bound to the mast so he could sail past the island where the sirens were known to be. 
He wanted to hear the supremely beautiful music, call, song of the sirens, but not be drawn onto the rocks, not be drawn into disaster. It never been done before. Nobody had ever done it before. It, the, the call of the sirens was so beautiful that everybody was called, dragged onto the rocks and drowned and died. And looking at this picture, it was a very, it's a very wonderful, very dramatic, very fitting metaphor for the kind of effort that needs to be made when we are determined to see beyond the way things appear to be. The call of the sirens has the seductive, apparent reality that if we follow it, we're going to get more pleasure. Whereas the evidence is such that by following it, you get killed. So, Ulysses had himself bound to the mast, which symbolizes very well the the commitment to a, a spiritual life. There needs to be, this is a part of the effort, surely, there needs to be an effort to commit. It wasn't like, um, well, we just sort of hang on to the mast, but he was bound to the mast. And the word, the word, as many of us would know, I expect, the word religion comes from the Latin root religio, which means to bind, to bind to. And so he was bound to the mast, and then, and then he had the oarsmen put wax in their ears so they couldn't hear, so they couldn't be seduced by the apparent reality. And so this is very much a part of the effort that needs to be made where there is a real commitment, a binding, a a, a limitation, an effort to commit. And to me that symbolizes the the commitment that we make to... um, to the training, when we come to sit meditation, if we're serious about our practice, well, we will sit regularly. We won't just say, well, I'll sit when I feel like it. I won't sit when I won't feel like it. It's necessary to actually make a commitment. Say, well, I'm going to sit, even if it's only 10 minutes. If after five minutes we want to get up, well, actually that's not the thing to do. It's to say, well, I'm going to stay here for 10 minutes. And it is actually good and in the beginning of this meditation to make a commitment that we know we can keep to. But there does still have to be a commitment. Or a commitment to the, the precepts. We've looked at them and we say, well actually, despite sometimes the, the impulse to do otherwise, I really don't actually believe that it's appropriate to to transgress these boundaries, that really the the principles of the five precepts, the principles of complete harmlessness, are something that I really do trust in. And so we commit ourselves to them. So even though there's maybe a real impulse to maybe be deceitful or take something that we're not entitled to, whatever, because we've committed ourselves to the precepts, or we don't do it. And 
and this is necessary in the beginning this this effort actually doing something many times we we um, we tend to as I was saying in the very beginning in the meditation instructions we tend to see the spiritual practice as a, as a mental effort but one of the reasons why we begin with making gestures of offering candles and incense and bowing is because the, the body is in this too. We're training in the whole body mind. The whole body mind is being trained in this effort. And so uh, it's a, an essential element, a primary element, that we're willing to be bound to the mast. And and are willing to, uh, we make the effort to be bound to the mast, and then a, willing, a willingness to a willingness to say no. Now I don't know the, all the details of the stories of Ulysses, but my memory tells me that he instructed the, the oarsmen that whatever happens, they just keep rowing straight ahead. No matter how much he screams and demands that they untie him, they must not. They must refuse to follow his orders. And in this painting, you, there's the, the brilliant depiction of this, this impassioned guy bound to the mast screaming out and probably ordering his oarsmen to, to follow the sirens and, and the sirens are there as well and, and, but he's bound to the mast and so there's a, a willingness to say no when it comes to responding to the way things appear to be and finally there's also perhaps the crowning element of this is the is the interest, the interest to see beyond, the interest to go beyond, the interest not to avoid. Of course, Ulysses could have gone another route and missed the island. That's, that's, but that's not the point. The, there's a, there needs to be an interest in the reality of sadness. If we want to train in, in clear seeing, perfect seeing if we want to cultivate right seeing then yes there needs to be the effort to restrain the willingness to accept limitations which is what renunciation is about to choose to say no but the crowning principle surely is the the interest in reality Now the interest in, in desire, Ulysses wanted to hear the supremely beautiful callings of the sirens, to see the superbly beautiful, in this painting they are superbly beautiful sirens, to experience physically, fully, consciously the extraordinary apparent beauty and pleasure of the sensory realm but not be limited by it not to be drawn by it not to be defined by it so his interest is really the primary motivation So this is a good time of year 
to uh, re-inspect our aspirations. We're coming up to New Year, and um, as you all know, we have New Year's Eve. We have a a, um, a gathering here at midnight. Uh, we have a ritual of uh, forgiveness and aspiration. When we reflect on the consequences of the effort we've made in the last life and our relationships and, and then make an effort to to forgive those who we feel have have um, mistreated us or misunderstood us or misperceived us and and also the effort to ask for forgiveness from those for whom we have misperceived or misunderstood or mistreated and so there's that part of the ritual but then also there's the and that with that part of the ritual we write the names on the pieces of paper of those who we wish to forgive and those from whom we wish to ask for forgiveness and then we burn that piece of paper and and then the second piece of paper we write on the second piece of paper we write our aspirations what is it we aspire towards we do have longings we all know our hearts long our bodies long, our minds long. So, what sort of longing is in accordance with what we find truly beautiful, truly wonderful, truly valuable, truly meaningful? What would we long for in a way that would accord with our heart's deepest wishes? Well, it seems to me this is a, a skillful way of of considering uh, aspirations, right aspiration, what do we aspire for. So looking at the way we see life, the way we see, not think, how is our inner seeing oriented? Do we feel contented with a conditioned level of seeing or or is the longing the interest to see clearly to see beyond the apparent beauty and seductive nature of conditioned existence see beyond the way sadness appears to be the way desire appears to be and my encouragement would be to engage the Buddha's teachings, to engage this practice in a way whereby we grow in confidence that it is actually possible to develop this clear seeing and to experience for ourselves the benefit of that. And thank you very much for your attention.